you give life. All life comes from you, springs from your hand. Lord, we ask you to help us to value life as you do. Lord, when we don't or we haven't, help us to repent and confess that sin to you and receive the forgiveness of sin that the blood of Jesus gives us. Lord, I pray that we are spokesmen for life as well. Help us to be those who encourage others generally and then specifically, Lord, that choosing life is a great thing, that children are a blessing. Unique, Lord, eternal creatures. We ask you to always help us to affirm life, to honor you as we do. And ask, Lord, as we look at a message that talks about what you give and what you take, help us to be on your side. Help us to see things as you want us to. Help us to know you as you mean us to. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you have a study sheet, by the way, as I look at my notes here. January 4th, uh, Cripplegate from this year tells a story that I looked this up and I was hoping to find more facts about this story. If you look this up, you'll find the story itself repeated online multiple times, but I was unsuccessful in finding out anything more specific. The story is told of Frederick Nolan. He was a missionary in North Africa, don't know when. Don't know specifically where, but the story is told that as a Christian who had been sharing the gospel, he was being chased by folks who didn't want him to share the gospel and were ready to end his life. So as he's fleeing for his life, literally, he's passing by some caves and he's afraid to go into any of them because he knows the guys chasing him who want to end his life are going to search the cave, surely and he would be found out, and his life would be over. But eventually, he is so fatigued, he knows, I simply can't go on. So he simply chooses a small cave, goes inside, lays down, and looks at the opening of the cave. As he's waiting for the guys to catch up with him and get him, he sees a small spider in the cave entrance start weaving a web. And miraculously, it would appear, the spider weaves a web over the entrance to the cave before the searchers come by to find him and because there's a spider web in front of the cave they don't search it and he is saved and out of that he coined this pithy couplet where God is a web is like a wall where God is not a wall is like a web what actually has the power to protect you or me or anyone else ultimately is up to God himself. If you remember Jim Elliott, uh, Jim Elliott was famous because with a number of other young men and families, they went to South America decades ago, at least 50 years ago, maybe 60, uh, to share the gospel with an unreached and hostile people group in South America. And in the process of doing that, he was slain by the people he took, was taking the gospel to along with several of his fellows At the end, the happy story was most of the tribe, the tribe that slew him and his friends, uh, came to faith, came to Christ. He's well remembered for that. He's also remembered for another brief statement that goes like this. He is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. To, To give up what he can't hold on to anyway, life, right at the end of the day for all of us, 
whether it's the rapture or natural death, we don't control the end of our life. We're going to give it up one day. We're not foolish to give up what we can't keep to gain what we cannot lose. Eternal life, of course, ultimately. To those two lines, let me give you one last one as we get into the message proper. What God gives cannot be taken, and what God takes cannot be kept. What God gives cannot be taken, and what God takes cannot be kept. This is the second message in the Deuteronomy series we started last week, subtitled Mercy Waiting. And we're really focusing this morning on God's sovereign intentions related to the land He gives to some and the land He takes from others. That in the passage we're in this morning, you'll see that the theme is what God gives and what God takes. And with what God gives, there's this notion of possessing laying hold of what God has freely given to us. But the flip side is that what God is giving to some, He is taking from others. Thinking of the song we opened with this morning, great introduction, it's God that gives and it's God that takes. That's the theme of the text this morning. And He is still doing that today, by the way. We'll talk about this coming up. But you know, as the world gets frazzled around us, we should not be frazzled. And Isaiah 8 talks about don't call conspiracy what the people around you call conspiracy. Don't get caught up in things that the unsaved, unknowing world around you does. God is still at work giving and taking for His sovereign purposes. That's what we'll see this morning. We're going to read in Deuteronomy 2, starting at verse 1 through chapter 3. Verse 22, and as we do, notice how often the term give or gave or giving or given is, yeah, comes up. And also the term possess. Uh, those are the key terms that we'll see in this text. And also just to set the stage, the text we're taking up is after Israel refused to believe God and trust God at Kadesh Barnea at the end of two years in the wilderness, God says, okay, we're going to go back into the wilderness. That's sort of where we're picking up here. And I'm going to, as we read through, you can close your eyes and I'll know you're focused and listening. This is a large text. Again, because these are narratives, you have to have the story to get the points that are being made. So I've got a page and a half of text to read. You can close your eyes and listen. You can follow along and I'll be reading in the ESV. So this is Deuteronomy 2 starting at verse 1. Moses writes, We turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. This is away from Kadesh Barnea, as the Lord told me. And for many days we traveled around Mount Seir. Now you remember the, the many days is 38 years. Then the Lord said to me, You have been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward and command the people. This is what Moses commands them. You're about to pass through the territory of your brothers the people of Esau who live in Seir. So if we're looking at a map and Israel and the coast are here, let me give your orientation. Israel and the coast and the Dead Sea and the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee. He says, as you head up Seir, Seir's sort of on the lower east side of the Dead Sea. He says, uh, be very careful. They're going to be afraid of you. Be very careful. Do not contend with them 
For I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. So we went on away from our brothers, the people of Esau. They traveled east and then north instead of straight north, who live in Seir, away from the Arabah road, from Elath and Etzion Geber. And we turned and went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab. Verse 9, And the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given Ar to the people of Lot for a possession. Ar is one of the key cities there in Moab. Moab. Uh, Listen to verse 10. This gets a little uh, tricky just because of the number of names, but this makes a point. Moses wrote, The Emim formerly lived there. So in the land Moab... currently possesses while Moses and Israel are going by them. That land used to be long to the Emim. They are a people great and many and tall as the Anakim. And when you hear the term Anakim, those are giants. These are people like Goliath. Like the Anakim, they also are counted as Rephaim. That's a synonym for the same people group. But the Moabites call them Emim. The Horites, this is a people group we're not entirely clear on, also lived in Seir formerly, but the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. Verse 16, so as soon as all the men of war had perished, these are the Jews, this is the Exodus generation, they had perished and were dead from among the people, the Lord said to me, today... You're to cross the border of Moab at Ar, and when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. Verses 20 through 23 basically describe that just like the Moabites, the Ammonites had had to also dispossess people groups to get the land God gave them. Verse 24, rise up, set on your journey, and go over the valley of the Arnon. So as they go north, the Arnon's a major river that goes into the Dead Sea. Now God says, behold, I have given into your hand Sion, the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. Verses 26 through 29 are a little confusing. Uh, Moses reaches out to Sion. God said, engage him in battle. Moses reaches out to him and says, hey, can we come through? He says, no. Verse 30, but Sion, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him for because the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, just like Pharaoh in Egypt, because so that he might give him into your hand. You get the God's giving and God's taking. As it is this day, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have begun to give Sion and his land over to you. Begin to take possession that you may occupy his land. Then Sion came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Jahaz, And the Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people. 
Verse 37, Only to the land of the sons of Ammon you did not draw near, that is, to all the banks of the river Jabbok and the cities of the hill country, whatever the Lord our God had forbidden us. Going into Deuteronomy chapter 3, Then we turned and went up the way to Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Edre. But the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand. And you shall do to him as you did to Sion, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon. Verse 8, So we took the land at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, from the valley of the Arnon, so he's on the east side of the Jordan, from south, the valley of the Arnon, up, way north of the Sea of Galilee, to Mount Hermon, all the cities of the Tableland, and all Gilead, and all Bashan. Verse 12, When we took possession of this land at that time, I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites the territory belonging at Aurora, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and half the hill country of Gilead with its cities. The rest of Gilead and all Bishon, the kingdom of Og, that is all the region of Argob, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh. To Machir I gave Gilead, and to the Reubenites and the Gadites I gave the territory from Gilead as far as the valley of the Arnon. So basically he's saying, as you go from south to north, so Reuben, Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh are all going to settle on the east side of the Jordan River Valley. Verse 18, And I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. So he's speaking to the tribes that already have their land on the east side. He said, guys, you're not done. You're going to go ahead with the other tribes. You're going to go, in fact, at the head of them as they cross to the other side of the Jordan until they possess their lands as well. Verse 20, until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as to you, they also occupy the land that the Lord your God gives them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession, which I have given you. Last, at verse 21, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. Okay, so now if your eyes are closed, you have to open them. So by my count, in just the two chapters, and we didn't read them in their entirety, but in chapters 2 and 3 of Deuteronomy, the term give or a variant is used 16 times. And the term possess is used 12 times. If you look at the rest of the book of Deuteronomy, give or its variant is used 96 times. And possess is used 66 times. You can see that it's a theme throughout the book. It's what God is giving and it's what God is taking. And this wasn't just Israel. Did you notice verse 5, 9, and 19? It's the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites that God specifically says, you can't have their land because I gave it to them. You know, usually if we think of a land of promise, we think of Israel specifically because the promise to Abraham and the promise reiterated of that special land for Abraham's descendants. But what you see here is it wasn't just Israel that God had designated specific land and nation status for. It was the other nations as well. And Israel is now 
In fact, is contrasted and compared with the pagan nations around them because God's given them land that he means for them to possess. So he's given it to them, and they're going to have to possess it. Verse 24, 31, and verse 2 of chapter 3, I've given into your hand. I have begun to give Sion. I have given him and all his people into your hand. Go back to those three pagan nations for just a minute. Uh, and this is why it's significant. So God tells us, you don't get this land, that's their land. This, these nations, they're there because I put them there. But what does it also tell you? It tells you that the land they occupied was possessed by giants. So think of that for just a minute. They don't have God. They're pagans. They don't have God's promises. But the land they occupied, they took from giants. And do you remember why the guys at Kadesh Barnea wouldn't go up? Because there's giants in the land. This is really, really telling for me that the people group, the Exodus group that wouldn't go up, they lacked the courage of pagan nations that were willing to face giants without knowing God and with no promise. And here is Israel with God's promise and saying, don't fear them. I am fighting the battle for you. And they turned around and they said, Lord, we don't believe you and we're just going to go check out and do something else. So here in Deuteronomy, God is comparing the Exodus generation with the pagans. And all Israel has to do is the same thing that people that didn't know God and didn't have his promises, they're going to do the same thing, only they know God is saying, I'm with you and I'm giving you success. So this is a huge contrast that we're meant to see. Are we willing, in other words, are we willing to do sometimes what others just like us are willing to do who don't know God and don't have his promises? Are we, are we as courageous as the pagan nations that don't have the reason to be courageous and confident? It's a huge comparison here in the book of Deuteronomy. So, on this front end, you got all this language about God gave. So God not only gave the promised land to Abraham's descendants, but he also gave nation status and geography to pagan nations as well. God gave. And then the flip side of that is God took. So the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, the Moabites, and the Ammonites, they all had to take land from others before them also. And these tribes are important for this reason, right? Who, is, who are the Edomites descended from? They're descended from Abraham through Jacob through Esau. So they're Abraham's descendants. And, and how are the Moabites and the Ammonites? They're connected in here in the family too, aren't they? Because they're not Abraham's direct descendants, but they're Lot's descendants. The Moabites and the Ammonites are from Lot, and to those relatives and descendants of Abraham, God says, I'm giving them nation status as well, and I'm doing so in these lands, near the land of promise. So you've got God's taking lands on the east side of the Jordan River to give to Israel just as he had already done with these nations that didn't know him. So you've got God giving on one hand, and then you've got God taking on the other hand. And do you guys feel, is there anything unfair about this? Does this sound unfair? Is it okay for God to take 
land from those people? Is that okay? Is it? Have you ever, maybe you did this, or maybe you heard your children, kids playing, and maybe they come to mom or dad, and they said, Johnny's not being fair. Or one child gets one thing and another child doesn't, and Junior says to mom or dad, that's not fair. And you say, okay, well, let's think about this. So the parent, of course, has authority over their child, right? They're in authority, and what the child gets is what the parent gives. And, and assuming they're not abusive or they're, they're a good parent, you'd say, well, the parents may know things or have reasons that Johnny may not know about, but they have the authority, and it's up to them to decide what Johnny gets, what is given and what is taken. So we say, who has authority to give land? Who has authority to take from people? Does God have authority to do Is that okay for God to do that? Does God have authority? So we'd say things like, uh, God owns it because he's creator, right? He created all the stuff. The cosmos is from God, right? But I love Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything that fills it up. The world is God's and those who dwell in it. So sometimes if you, if you read a passage like this and you say God's taking something away from one person and giving it to another, you might have that thought come up in your mind, that doesn't sound fair. And guys, the one thing, and we'll change the language here slightly, the one thing God can never be is less than just. We use the term fair and it's, it's a plastic term, it's used for all kinds of things, but if we're using the term fair in the sense of right or righteous or just, that's one of the things God can never be. He can never be unjust. He would break the character that is His eternally. He can never be less than righteous. He never does anything that's less than just and righteous. So whatever we see going on, especially in this text this morning, God's never less than just in what He gives and what He takes. And there's a great reminder of this. You remember the Old Testament uh, person of Job who is given everything. You remember, he's the wealthiest guy, he's the wisest guy, he's got all the servants, he's got all the stuff. But he's a godly guy too, right? He, God gives him all that stuff, and then what happens? Now, if you know the story, we, we understand it's Satan that's given permission to take all the stuff, but God, please remember, God always initiates everything in the story of Job, as well as everything that's going on on the earth. It's God that points Job out to Satan. Have you seen my servant, Job? So, under God's hand, Job is given everything, and then everything's taken. Is that okay? Before everything, of course, is given back again. What, do you remember Job's response? God has given, God has taken, blessed be the name of the Lord. Job had it right. God's never wrong in what he gives or in what he takes. And to this thing, the whole notion of God's sovereignty, now we're talking about nations here, the whole thing about time and geography and nations and giving and taking, Daniel is one of the key, key books in the Old Testament on this theme. And it's interesting because, of course, Daniel's, uh, he's an exile. He doesn't even live in the land of promise. You know, the Jews have been exiled out of their promised land for lack of faithfulness. And yet, here's Daniel, this faithful guy. And, and God uses him to speak and to prophesy and to speak to kings. And here's just a couple concepts that come out of the book of Daniel. Chapter 2, verse 21, 
God changes times and seasons that orient the world that we orient by, and He removes kings and He sets up kings. God gives kingship to some and He takes it from others. And if you know the book of Daniel, you know it's a book about God giving kingship to some and taking it from others. Later in that same chapter to King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel says, the God of heaven has given the kingdom, power, might, and glory to you. It's not that you're such a great guy. God gave you this position, this status, this power, this authority. He says, He has given the inhabitants of the land to you. And God has determined three more kingdoms will rise. There's no surprises to God in kingdoms that rise, nations that rise and fall, because God claims to be behind all of that. And guys, a lot of times we don't see this, right? You know, in Daniel's day when uh, Habakkuk, I think it is, in the Minor Prophets, God tells Habakkuk, hey, I'm going to judge Israel with the Babylonians. And Habakkuk's like, hold on, Lord. That's not fair. Because we're bad, but they're worse. And God says, that's okay. I'm going to use the worst to judge you, my people, and then I'll judge them too. So they're not, they're not skating out on anything. But it sounded odd to them. Why would you raise up those Babylonians and they're going to come in and they're hurting us and we're your covenant people and they're not? And God says, I'm in control. This is all for my purposes. Last in Daniel 4 verse 25, the Most High, God Himself, rules the kingdom of men and He gives it to whom He will. God gives the kingdoms and leadership to whom He will. Now, guys, when I look around and I look at Chairman Xi in China or I look at Putin in Russia, I might say, Lord, are you sure about this? Is, what am I missing? And you don't know, I don't know what I'm missing. And you don't know what we're missing either, right? Because God's sovereign. And this is the thing. We know that God's behind. When we say God's sovereign, we don't mean there aren't means that, that God uses to, to bring about his agenda. But guys, we have no idea how that works. You got God sovereignly at work through, through evil actions and intentions, and He's still weaving all this stuff together from the human, you know, on the human level to accomplish His grand design and purposes. And more often than not, it, looks, it makes no sense to us whatsoever. And we still say God is sovereignly giving and taking as He sees fit for His purposes. We want to be able to say that same thing as well. Now, God gives and takes. And guys, it's not just nation status. So this is, I'm skipping into the New Testament here, but in John 3, 27, remember John the Baptist is on the scene to introduce Jesus. But John in his day, he is the man. All Israel's going out to hear John the Baptist down in the Jordan River Valley. And he's baptizing them. And then there's real renewal as the nation prepares to meet their Messiah. Think of Isaiah or think earlier in John's Gospel or Luke's. So he's doing the thing, and he's the man. But what happens when Jesus comes on the scene? John points out to his disciples, hey, this is the Lamb of God. He's the one. This is the Messiah. He's the one. Well, later, this is in John 3, John's disciples come up to John, and they complain. They say, hey, you know, that guy from Galilee, he's taking your followers more people are following him than you. They love John, and they want to see John exalted. And, 
And John says this, he doesn't start by saying, he's the lamb and I'm not. He will say, he must increase and I must decrease because my role is over. But he says this instead. He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You can't even receive one thing unless God says yes. That behind all the giving ultimately is God in what God gives and what he takes or what he doesn't give at all. You see the same thing in John 19, 11, when Jesus stands before Pilate and he refuses to engage with Pilate verbally. And Pilate says, don't you know I have authority over you? I can condemn you or I can set you free. And Jesus' famous response you would have no authority unless it had been given you from above. Jesus points ultimately to the Father and says, if you have authority, it's ultimately because my Father gave you that authority. You wouldn't be in this position otherwise. God is sovereignly determining the times and seasons governing His program on earth. And guys, it goes on and on and on. It's the Holy Spirit of God that brings about your conversion and mine, you see in John 3. By the way, it's God who determines as a believer what your spiritual gift will be, what the effect of your spiritual gift will be, what the sphere and the arena of your influence will be. You'll see that in 2 Corinthians 10. God's at work in all of this stuff because He's God and we're not. He can do as He pleases and when He gives and when He takes or when He withholds, it's always for His glory. It's always just, never anything less than just. And it's always ultimately about bringing about His divine plan, which is ultimately Ephesians 1, 10 and 11. It's bringing all things into subjection to Jesus Christ. Now, the, the route along the way looks crazy, right? How are we getting there? Well, I, I don't see it. But that's where we're going. And everything ultimately is serving God's purposes. The process of God doing this, giving and taking, setting up nations, taking them down, guys, it's still going on. This isn't Old Testament history only. It's still going on today. When Paul was in Athens sharing the gospel, he said this, Acts 17, 27. He said, God made from one man every nation. You know, there are nations, if you look on a map, there's nations in Africa I didn't know existed. This text says God made every nation. God made every nation of mankind from one man to live on the face of the earth. God has determined their allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling. If there's a nation on the earth, it's because God created the nation. And it's God that says they exist within this time frame. And it's God that says they occupy this geography. No more and no less. And this is interesting. You know, in a day of, uh, it's been less because of President Trump, but all the arguments and all the haranguing about immigration, legal and illegal, and I don't know if you're aware, there have been lots of people that say, we should be a country without borders. A country, do you know that it's God that establishes borders? You're not a nation without borders. This is clear, Old Testament and here in Acts 17, that it's God that says you exist as a nation in this time frame and you exist in this geography. God is behind nations. And by the way, guys, this is something that comes up 
In the eternal state, Revelation 22, there are nations. There are people groups described by nation status. Nations don't end with the eternal state. You'll see nations in the millennial kingdom of Christ. You'll see nations in the eternal state as well. All of that is from God. It was by God's doing. Think of this recently. Now, this isn't yesterday's news, but in 1948, we mentioned this a week or two back, a people group that hadn't had nation status in almost two millennia, most, most people groups would be unidentifiable after two millennia. But after two millennia, Israel regains nation status in May of 1948. And guys, think of what it, th put it in, in a historic perspective. The, the Jews have been persecuted throughout the world through, through all time. Why is that? Because God has plans for them. And think of what preceded this. So if I'm tracing God's hand a little bit, World War II, at least six million Jews are murdered. It was the death of those Jews that gave the world, unnecessary as it should have been, enough sympathy to say, you know what, you guys do need your own place. So the United Nations said, uh, we, will, we will give you nation status there in the land of promise, which they were still calling Palestine. And, you know, President Truman of the United States, was, frankly, was one of the holdouts. You know, Truman had to be convinced by Jews and Christians that this was a good thing to get behind. Israel, as a modern nation, they're there because God put them there. You can read books, you can read history books. One book uh, called O Jerusalem that I'd recommend is a great book because it, it goes back and forth on the stories of the Israelis and the Palestinians who were already there and what what that looked like around 1948. But guys, Israel as a nation is a miracle. It's nothing short of that. And on the day of their nation's birth, they were attacked by five separate nations. And they survived. And in 1967, they took over what's now called the West Bank. They are the little guys on the block. There's no earthly reason that they've defeated the Arab Muslim nations around them twice significantly, and more than that, if you count all the battles, it's because God is giving them the land. And he's taking it. I don't know if you're familiar with this. This is a sublight. Many of the Arabs, before May 15th of 48, they told the Palestinians to get out of the way. Flee your homes, leave your farms, leave your land. Get out of our way. We'll sweep in, we'll decimate the Jews, and then you can come back. And so those people left. They left land God was giving to the Jews. They just left. They did. And that's part of the reason why you'll hear still today in the news, families, or descendants of families, still saying, we want our land back in Israel. And why did you leave? Well, our big brothers told us to leave. They'd take care of everything. But it was God that was giving. It was God that was taking. You still see the same thing going on today. God's going to continue doing that until Revelation 11.15 occurs, which is the statement that until the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. That's where everything heads, of course. So God gives and God takes. He's done that throughout history. He's still doing it today. Possessing usually requires struggle. And this goes back, this for us, this is the point at which you say, 
what do I do with a text like this or a narrative like this with these sort of these big themes? God's at work on a worldwide scale, nations and people groups. But, you know, here am I in my little corner of the world or here's our church. You know, how does that apply to me? And it at least applies in this. What God gives, not always, and I'll, I'll, we'll give a caveat for this in a second, but almost always what God gives you and me must be struggled for. That we labor, we struggle to possess what God gives. We struggle to possess what God gives. The Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, guys, they all faced giants. And they did so without God's presence or promise. And they won. They were willing to do that. They were willing to labor to possess. And what those nations did, Israel would need to do as well. But with God's promise that he is with them, that he would fight their battles. The generation that died in the wilderness refused to believe God could or would give them victory over the inhabitants of the land. He had promised them. Yet you see here, God gave not only the land of promise to Israel, but he gave it to Edomites, Moabites, and Ammonites. And they had to conquer giants and walled cities. And they did so. They were willing to risk that to lay hold of the thing they didn't know, but God was sovereignly giving them. Israel's occupation for us, and this is, the, this is the point of application. Israel's occupation of the land of promise is a paradigm. It's like a map, or it's like a picture or a shadow of the kind of things that you and I are called to as well, not related to a land of promise, but related to promises, things God has given us, that must still be labored over, that we must still struggle to possess. They're given, they're ours, but it still requires something on our end to do them. We face individually and corporately conflicts or opposition that appear so great they loom like giants on the horizon. I may have something I know God, God's called me to or gifted me, and yet I'm afraid to go do something about it. We may face temptations and sin within our own lives and churches that seem as unconquerable as the tall walls of those walled cities. And we quail. And it's like we don't even want to start because we're just afraid it's all going to go south. Just as God gave Israel victory over giants and walled cities, He is with us in our struggles when we face opposition from without or temptations and sin from within in possessing and laying hold of the things he means for us to have. Now, before I give an example, I want to be clear and say this. Salvation is the exception. There's no work that you can do to gain forgiveness of sin and eternal life. Zero. And on the reference sheet on your study, John 6, this very thing comes up. And in John 5 and 6, Jesus had fed 5,000 people and they're working hard to follow Him to get the next happy meal. They want Jesus to feed them again. They're working hard to follow Him. And so this is what He says in part. Jesus turns to them and He says, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that excuse me, endures to eternal life. So work hard for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. They said to him, okay, because they're works-oriented, what must we do to do the works of God? 
Okay, give us, the, give us the labor, give us the struggle, give us the work to do. Jesus answered, this is the work of God. Okay, this is God's work for salvation. This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Related to salvation, the forgiveness of sin, eternal life, sonship with God forever, the work you and I do is no work at all. It's faith alone in Christ alone. Faith in Jesus is what saves us. So we're not talking about salvation when we're talking about laboring or struggling to possess. Salvation is a free gift we simply receive in the arms or the hands of faith, period. So we're not talking about that. But consider this. This is John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Has Jesus given you and me and his disciples, has he given us his peace? He's given it to us. It's ours. It's a gift. In fact, it's one of the fruits of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, Galatians 5. It's a gift. It's ours. Have you ever gone through life and not felt God's peace? And you know what you say in those times? You have to labor to get a hold of, to possess peace. You, sometimes to possess the promise, we have to labor or struggle to get there. And you know, this, in this, think of just the peace. I'm using this as a singular example. If I'm going through life and I'm anxious or I'm worried, uh, worried or I'm fearful, you know, what's coming up? The struggle, the labor is to choose to believe God and His Word against my emotions, against my fears, against my propensity to anxiety. That's the struggle. It's not physical, external. It's laying hold of God's promises and saying something like, God, you're big enough for this thing I'm facing. God, you know, I am terrified by this, but I trust you for the outcome. You show me how to be faithful going through. That's how we labor and struggle to possess something like peace. 2 Corinthians 10 is on your study sheet. This is a huge issue about the Christian's responsibility to confront what others tell us is fact, or to confront the emotions or the thoughts in our own mind and to, to weigh them by God's Word to say, yes or no, that's true. Yes, it's true. No, it's false. The language there is, I'm, I'm taking thoughts captive. The things you and I face are temptations usually not to believe God's Word about something, to believe someone else instead. You see the same thing in Ephesians 6. Uh, related to spiritual warfare, where people are not our enemy. <laughs> this says ultimately it's spiritual powers. Ultimately, Satan is our enemy spiritually. How do you fight? How do you take ground in a spiritual war? That's Ephesians 6. And Paul, he basically talks about the Word of God and prayer. So when you and I are facing our struggle to possess the things God has freely given us in Christ, it's almost always about the Word of God and prayer. And that's what you see in Ephesians 6 and 2 Corinthians 10. So our labors to possess what God has given us in Christ include what has God said. That's what we got to have. That's truth. It doesn't change. So that's what we have to have. And we have to pray. Prayer for many of us is a last resort. And it's supposed to be the first resort with God's word and prayer. God has said something 
and we pray God's word back to him. So if I'm without peace, I can say, Lord, you said I have your peace and I'm not feeling it. And would you show me the thoughts in my mind that are not allowing me to possess what is mine in Christ? So when we're talking about laboring to possess, we could say, we could say something as simple as walk by the Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit within us, showing us the truth of God's Word, leading us in prayer. Walk by the Spirit and we'll possess the gifts God's freely given us. If you have your study sheet, I, I do hope this is a workbook of sorts for us. As I consider my own life, as I consider the place in the body of Christ God has put me, what promises from God should I be laying hold of? Guys, because our life is a work of sanctification until we breathe our last, God's always refining us. There's always more ground. There's always more promised land to take. There's always more ground. There's always more promises to believe. There's always more application to make. What promises from God should I be laying hold of? What service to others has God called me to and I haven't begun them because I'm afraid? Giants and walled cities. I know God wants me to do such and such. And I've just refused to start because I'm afraid I won't succeed. What personal battles with sin have we refused to engage in because we're afraid we'll only fail again? Those areas where we have chronic sin and we're like, I, I'm just going to entertain my sin because every time I try and get out of the hole, I just fail again. And the failure is so painful, I just don't even want to restart. I'll just be satisfied to live defeated in this area of my life. But God says He's fighting our battles for us. We're walking in the victory Christ has already won for us. Again, it's an issue. It's a battle for the mind. It's the Word of God and prayer that helps us lay hold of those things. As Christ's church, what should we be doing in love? <clears throat> Excuse me, service, proclamation, and demonstration of Jesus' call. You know, what does God mean for us to be doing corporately as the body of Christ in the time and the place we occupy? What should we be possessing? What, what is God calling us to possess, to labor about, to take God's word in, to pray over? What does that look like for us as a church? I love Edom, Moab, and Ammon. They were idolaters. They didn't know God. And yet they were willing to face giants and walled cities to possess that land to be blessed. Not knowing that God would sovereignly give them, of course, the land and the victory. The Exodus generation of Israel proved less willing than pagan nations who didn't know God, didn't have His word, didn't have His promises to lay hold, to possess the blessing God was giving them. As followers of Jesus, God incarnate, are we willing to believe God to lay hold of the gifts Jesus has given to us to wisely invest and risk in order to honor God and glorify Jesus? Do we have that mindset? God's spoken. We believe we're going to go into whatever it is God's called us to. Are we in it to win it? Is that our attitude? Because it should be. It should be. Well, stand if you would, and let's read. This is from Psalm 18. This is the Psalm of David. Yeah. As the worship team comes up. Yeah. See, are we going to get the whole thing? 
Most of us, many of us will know this by heart anyway. We'll take what we get there. It's what David wrote. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take.